0: Please hang up and try again Torah Resource presents The Rob and Caleb Show
1: All aboard
0: And now From two sides of the same state Here they are Rob and Caleb
2: What up What up and shalom Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hag. With me, as always, Rob Van Hoff. What up and shalom, Rob?
0: Shalom.
2: How's it going, brother?
0: It is going well. Good. I like the I like the picture of you playing your cello.
2: Oh, thanks. Yeah, I uh, I played a show last night. It was a. Uh...
0: If it sounded as good as as good as that picture looked. <laughs> <laughs> then man, that was a rocking show, oh, a sham and yeah, show. Yeah, like
2: yes, yes, uh, it was. It was a. It was a lot of fun. Welcome everyone to the Robin Caleb Show, and we have had a significant amount of technical difficulty <laughs> today. So uh, we're tr- we're hoping that everything works the way that we are praying it works.
0: We don't know whether they were t- are generational. <laughs>
2: uh, Rob, Rob's audio right now sounds a little tinny to me, but uh, I, I guess we're, you know, there's nothing we can do about that right now. We're just going to keep it going. It could be my voice. No, it's definitely not. I'm getting background noise I, I from am Rob part too. Digital. Somebody, actually, somebody wrote recently, uh, actually today, I just I just answered their email, uh, or it was on Facebook, I think. Anyway, so they, they wrote and said that since we put the noise gate on, because we, we have, so basically what we do is we put an effect on The uh, on the podcast, and what that effect does is it makes it so when no one's talking, we go to like it goes to dead air, it it goes completely flat. There's no sound going coming through your speakers, at least there shouldn't be. And
0: And, uh, some people might not know that the noise gate is one of the gates of ancient Jerusalem.
2: Oh, my word! No, that's not true. (laughs) Uh, anyway, so because we put a note,
0: the the dung gate,
2: and the noise gate
0: noise gate
2: uh, okay
0: i'm I'm jumping the gun the bad i, the, I had to get to jerusalem get, you keep going the bad about the sound the bad
2: the bad jokes abound apparently already
0: my computer runs the fan a lot probably because i'm overloading it with stuff and so when caleb doesn't have the that gate on there's this background noise that kinda of humps. But on the flip side, that gate makes some people think when they're listening that their internet shut off because it gets so quiet.
2: Yeah, it basically it makes it so so it sounds like your your speaker's shut off. Um, but the other thing is is that I'm in an office here. And so there are people walking around outside my door, there are people talking every once in a while. And what this noise gate does is it says that anything that's not louder than, you know, this amount, whatever that amount might be, like disregard like turn everything off
0: which is and Caleb is our plumb line for that because he is the loud mouth that's right so what whatever he says comes through
2: so let us know if you think that our okay (laughs) let us know if you think that our uh, noise gate is annoying because you think that your computer keeps turning off um then let us know we'll we'll take that into consideration we don't want people to be frustrated with the sound of this podcast even though I think that that happens more often than not Guess what we got ladies and gentlemen for all of our listeners we got stickers yeah. stickers today they just they were p- passed to me right before we pressed record so this is and let me uh let me move over here to my camera so i can see this too i don't think anybody can see that really anyway that's the uh tipping sacred cows it says
0: that is designed by Mr. Smith That's right uh, Mr. Smith uh, Montana Adam, USA
2: Adam Smith The Robin Caleb show Tipping Sacred Cows every thursday and then www.trradio.com and then we have another one i'm one of the 36 the rob and caleb show who designed do you remember who yes of course i remember who designed that one that was my idea and well, I, that was yours i felt bad because uh it was my idea and i thought i'd slip it in there i didn't think it would get chosen and it it was the favorite Mm -hmm. So that's why I actually wanted two of them. Anyway, thank you. uh, Our producers from last week, Rebecca and uh, Adam, are the ones who produced the show last week, and they are the ones who sent the money to have those done. So a big thank you to those guys. Yeah, go for it.
0: Are you going to make an announcement? Or did you already make an announcement?
2: I'm going to make a lot of announcements. What announcement are you referring to?
0: Well, I'm just thinking about... uh... Mr. Smith's bumper
2: oh. sticker there, yeah, yeah, are you t- wait, I'm still confused
0: I'll hold off you you go sing your song, man, play your cello, <laughs> and I'll jump in when when I get the cue, okay, this show I'm using music uh music lingo for all you non musicians
2: <laughs> this show is going to be a little bit different um. I'd like to say that I'm not as prepared as I normally am. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I did a lot of work this morning to try to bring this show up to par. But if you follow us on Facebook, if you're a fan of the Rob and Caleb show on Facebook, then you already know that we're changing format. This is like the this is like the transition show, and it's this is going to be an important show though because this is
0: the year end of of the that's right the end of Adar.
2: That's right. If people don't realize this Friday night. We start a new year on the Jewish calendar. Now, a lot of people might think that Rosh Hashanah, or also known as Yom Teruah, which is usually in, what, September? Towards the end of September? Middle of of September? Sometime right around there. A lot of people think that that's the Jewish New Year. It's actually not the Jewish New Year. It's the Jewish New Year for... um, What?
0: It's like a civil New Year. They say it's the...
2: Yeah, civil New Year. So, like...
0: um, that's it's just kind of like we have the school year, you know, that
2: kind of starts. Yeah. Okay. So the, the real, the real actual New Year when the when the months start again begins on Friday night, and that's why you have in the like uh, you know for the Passover, the Passover is supposed to be in the first month on the fifteenth of the first month. Well, that's coming up. So that's why we have a new year. So with the new year coming in, we are going to revamp the Robin Caleb show. And some people might think that uh, we've been drastic. What we did was we went into my YouTube account where all of our videos are and we took down all of the videos from the past Robin Caleb shows. And uh we did that for numerous reasons. New start, uh we're going to have a new format for the show. But also, uh, we had some people uh, saying that we were not approaching things correctly, and uh, we took that to heart. And so, we decided... We're
0: purging out the leaven. That's
2: right. Taking the leaven out.
0: Taking the leaven out. What?
2: (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah. So, we're getting rid of all that stuff. And so, now, uh, we're going to start fresh. I will tell you this, though. um, That... Um, you can still listen to our old shows on the full access pass. And you can also, um, we'll also sell this entire season.
0: Um, For $1 million. Once
2: it's done, once, once we're done with this season, we'll, we'll sell the entire season. So you'll still be able to hear our past shows. And if there's a specific show that you want to share with friends or whatever, um, you can, you can still find them. Okay, so not all is lost. Anyway, so one of the things that we're going to do, uh, let me explain a little bit about the new format of the show. This is actually really exciting for me because I've been learning a lot of new programs and a lot of new little tricks that we're going to be using for the show. For instance, well, actually, that doesn't matter. Anyway, so one of the things that's going to be different is we're going to post our show notes every single week. And what that means, basically, I got some emails from a couple of people saying, hey, you know, you're always referencing these videos. We'd like to be able to see these videos in their entirety that you're talking about. Could you post those? Fair. Uh, Yeah, totally fair. And so we're going to uh, post our show notes each week. You'll be able to find those at a specific uh, website page that we're creating right now. And thank you to our web developer, Mark, for doing all of the work on our websites and uh, for building our new page
0: on our website pages. Yes,
2: exactly. And (laughs) we're we're, Rob's
0: in rare form today.
2: (laughs) Um, And then also we're going to have a chat room. So basically we're going to go live. We're going to do this whole thing live, which is a little bit scary and daunting. If we have technical problems like we did today, you all suffer. Yeah, you're going to suffer. But basically, Mm -hmm. there's not going to be that we're not going to have we're not going to change times on Thursday. You'll still be able to hear the show on Thursday at two o'clock and again at six o'clock. But what we're going to do is we're going to record it live on the air Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. So that's what. That's one o'clock on the East Coast, so you'll be able to hear it at one o'clock on the East Coast, uh, ten o'clock on the West Coast, live every Wednesday. And what you'll be able noon to noon Central, yes, exactly. You'll be able. To, another thing you'll be able to do is you'll be able to go to this website. You'll be able to uh, log in if you so desire. If you're if you're slacking at work, then you can jump onto the chat room and we'll have a chat. We'll have the chat up here, and you'll be able to interact with us live on the show through that chat room and with each other. You'll be able to uh, talk to each other. So I hope that that's going to be fun for everybody. I'm, you know, maybe we'll realize that people really don't want to interact with us on the show. Maybe we'll realize that there's like one person in the chat <laughs> chat room each week. <laughs> that's fair. That's okay. But the other thing that we've decided to do.
0: Well, wait, just second, mm-hmm. Caleb. Will people be able to see what other people are posting? Yes. Is it? It's like a running. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is. That's going to be. Is there any way to moderate? <laughs>
2: well, yeah, we'll have we'll have the ability to kick people off.
0: Okay, that's funny. And
2: and to ban, and I, to ban is, people. That'll
0: be good. This will be good. Yeah, we'll be able to
2: ban people as well. It'd be
0: cool if people could text in. And that's a new layer of
2: You can basically do the same kind of thing. You can basically text in. Uh you'll be able to do that on in the forum like oh, cool. So, I mean, you'll be able to do it. It's not exactly a text, but you'll be able to do it, you know. With your phone. With your phone. If you've got a smartphone, yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: If you've got a dumb phone like me, you're, you know.
2: Rob is behind the times. He's got like a flip phone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So one of the other things that we're going to do is we're changing our approach a little bit. Before what we've done is we've found things that we disagree with, we have, or, you know, people have well, sent, people send us stuff. Yeah, people send we, us stuff. We, don't, us we don't, we don't, we don't go out and, and search for this stuff, but people ask us to talk about stuff. So we get online, we figure out what side we, you know, we do all this research, we figure out what side we agree with, and then we totally blast the people that we disagree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of been the way that we've, and maybe not even intentionally, that's not exactly how we've intended to go about things. It's just kind of the way that things have kind of happened. Uh, and so we've decided to not do that anymore. What we're going to do is we figure that we have such brilliant listeners that are far above the average curve of the, you know, church synagogue goer, whatever it may be. And... So one of the questions that has ha- has come to me numerous times is how do you go about researching something? You know, like how do if if you hear something, how do you go into it? What are the things that you look for? Those kind of things. And I decided, you know what? Let's just, you know, tell people how we approach things and they can agree with us or disagree with us on how we approach it. So Rob and I come at different issues. From a historical grammatical interpretation, that's what we do. And um, if you don't do that, there sounds are... expensive. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I should be. I should have my sound effects out here. I don't know what's going on. So
0: what? What can you? What does that mean, Caleb? Historical grammatical. Those are words that I don't even think I learned those in high school. Or you know, in high school, I'm not sure. You know, the grammar history. Those are like not popular. High school subjects for most teens, at least the ones that grew up in the '80s.
2: You can Google it. Um, what it means is, is that w- in terms of historical, we have to look at things, look at uh, writings, and look at the Bible in its historical content, in context. I'm sorry, in its his- historical context.
0: So history means things happen over time, and there's things that develop, things that change, and that means that when we look at one historical situation and another, we recognize that there's a timeline, right? Just like, just like the histories in the Tanakh, like the story of, you know, the Book of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First Second Chronicles, or the story of the Patriarchs. Paul in Galatians says, "Look, Abraham received the promise, you know, centuries before the Torah was given at Sinai." Right? He's saying we got it. We have to recognize a timeline of things. What's right, that? Abraham didn't. Abraham wasn't around, uh you know, when Joseph was in Egypt, for example. I would right? say,
2: yeah. I would say that it's not just timeline, though, Rob. I would say that it's also, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say uh, no, uh, another, another thing. Another thing that we say that we mean when we say a historical grammatical interpretation in terms of history is that let's bring it into our own time for a few seconds. Let me see if I, if we can I can explain this this way. Right now. I live in Washington state in the United States. Okay. I live in a, I mean, the neighborhood I live in is not great, but I grew up in a very nice neighborhood. Uh, pro- I would consider it upper class neighborhood, even though my family was, you know, middle class. Uh, I was born into a white Republican family. Okay. And I grew up in a middle class home.
0: And you had, you had ministers and yeah. uh, both parents came from a line of, yes, had fathers that were pastors. Pastors, and so that's a that's a generational transmission of what the word of God means in your household, and what specific disciplines of devotional time, family prayer, Bible reading together, how the Bible story. You know, versus if you were to compare with a family like mine, for example, where only one parent went to church, the other didn't. It there was a kind of a an, this back and forth with what does it really mean, you know? Well, let's, so,
2: let, let's even, let's even take it a little bit, uh, you know, a, a little bit further. Let's say that now, now if you go to a culture like, I don't know, you know, you go to Italy, um, Italy is going to have a, a totally different culture. It's not American culture. And if you haven't been out of the U S you might not realize this. Well, but, and Northern
0: Italy versus Southern, or, you know what I mean? There's going to exactly. be even more diverse. But, a
2: but if you have a person who grew up in that, in that, you know, in Italy, in a specific area in Italy, maybe lower class, whatever, their upbringing is going to be so much different than mine. And so you have all sorts of things from social status and those kind of things. When we say historical grammatical, and we're talking about history, okay, a lot, and you'll hear a lot of messianics say, oh, well, you're thinking in the Greek mindset. And I think that's overused sometimes, it's also underused in the church. What, what a lot of people in the church think is, oh, well, Jesus grew up going to church every day, or, you know, every Sunday, and he sang in the choir, and, uh, you know, he he uh, his his mom was the organist, you know, those kind of, he went to Sunday school, those kind of things. And uh, that's not taking into consideration the historical... He kept Easter and Christmas. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's not taking into consideration the historical... Uh, surroundings of Yeshua at his time. He grew up in a, in a Jewish home. He went to synagogue on Shabbat. And even, and we can't think of synagogue t- like it is today. He didn't go to, he didn't go to, uh, you know, the Chabad house down the street uh, on Shabbat and daven with the Chabadniks. That's not how it worked. And if you don't know what that means, I, I apologize, but um, you know it's just an Orthodox synagogue. What he did, what a synagogue back then looked like as opposed to what it did today is probably very drastically different. And we can talk about, you know, we can try to study and and whatnot what the synagogue might have looked like in that time. And it seems as though we had a lot of home uh, congregations and those kind of things. We did have synagogues for sure in terms of the actual buildings and, and structures. And, and whatnot, but it definitely looked a lot different than it does today. And so, anyway, that's all to say that when we say historical grammatical, in terms of the history side of things, that's what we're talking about when we say his, historical. When we talk about grammatical, or historical grammatical interpretation, grammatical is different. Grammatical takes into uh, into account the actual words, the paleography, all of the things on the page, the way that the words are used, the the specific words themselves. All those things. So my father, Tim Haig, constantly says, uh, words don't have meaning, meaning has words. And what that means is, is that as I'm speaking right now, I have an intended meaning that I'm given to each one of these words. You, the listener, are hearing the words and you, are, you might have a different intended meaning, but for the most part, you don't. You have the same, you, you are understanding the words that I'm saying. Now there might be a word or two here or there that we might use differently, but basically, since I'm the one that's speaking, I'm I have what I'm trying to say, and I'm using words to convey that. So, the, right,
0: it, it depends on the listener too. Like if anybody who's married, you know, it's easy for couples sometimes. You know, my wife will say something, and I'm not being a good listener; my mind's on something else, and so I'm hearing every other word, and then I'm trying. Then I'm you're piecing me, together you know, <laughs> what did I say, and I I'm trying to piece it together. When in fact, but that's on me for not being a good listener. So uh, that's the other side. That's the other side to what when someone is speaking, you have an intended meaning. And the question is, are the is the listener being attentive? And and of course, we have feedback. That's when you ask the question, well, did you what did you mean this or this? And then you have the conversation that helps dial in any little ambiguities around the edges. But for yeah. the most part.
2: Yeah, but you don't have that with the Bible. You can't right. go. You can't go to the Bible author. You know, well, some, we can
0: be good, li- good or bad listeners.
2: Sure, but you can't go to the, the to the author and be like, "Yo, what do you mean by this?" <laughs> you know, you you have to. You have to now be a, uh, a good historian, a good researcher to find out, you know, what was going on, what the words meant predominantly in those times, how they were used. That's one of the things that we try to do. And you'll hear a lot of Messianics uh, try to do that. They'll say, oh, well, this word was used this way and this word was used that way. But um, a lot of the time people don't actually t- do the hard work of trying to figure out exactly what those words meant because basically what they're doing is they're resting on other work. They're solely resting on one work, and uh, you know, a lot of our listeners already know that we about some of what we say about that. We're going to get into that. So, what we've, what Rob and I have done, we've we've prayed a lot, we've discussed a lot about how we're going to go about our show from now on. We were originally going to do today's show on the seven laws of Hillel, and if you don't know what the seven laws of Hillel are, let me give you a quick rundown. Google it. You could Google yeah. Oh, man, where's my sound effect when I need it? I'm sorry. I, I'm not on the ball. You can Google it. Um, <laughs> um, So basically what you have with the seven laws of Hillel is this, there was this rabbi back in the first century who uh, right around the time of Yeshua probably predated Yeshua just
0: a little well, bit. Well, was never called a rabbi.
2: Oh, fair enough. Uh, and there you go. See, there's They're a perfect... Never getting
0: into yeah, historical grammatical. Yeah,
2: there's a perfect example. Okay, uh, Hillel was never called a rabbi. Uh, Yeshua was, but it seems as though most of the time, I, uh, most of the time it seems it was from his detractors. Um, anyway, okay, let's not get into that. So uh, the person who is now considered a rabbi by later, later generations, Rabbi Hillel, you had two schools two predominant schools of schools of thought in in the first century when it came to or at least that's how the later rabbis have projected it back um you have the school of and so we're we're ta- now we're looking at the first century back from a third century uh ce lens so third century yeah we're taking
0: witnesses from the third century, and so, they're testifying using the, them basically as testimony for something that happened 200 years prior.
2: Which we don't believe can, you can actually necessarily so, do.
0: So we have to take it. We don't want to not not look at the evidence. Of course. But we have to recognize its relative validity in terms of the bigger case.
2: Yeah, does it, you know, is it really, basically we have to take it with a grain of salt. It could be true, um, and there's probably some truth to it. However. We don't know. We have all the. We have all this information in front of us, and we don't know what what is uh, real and what has been fabricated and what has been embellished.
0: It would be like Caleb. So let's say you had a great, great, great grandpa who fought in the Civil War, and you don't have any written documents, but you have there were stories handed down, and now someone interviews you today, you know, hundred fifty years later,
2: and and says, "Yeah, tell me about your grandpa." Tell
0: me about the Civil War.
2: Yeah, right? exactly.
0: From from what you've heard in in your family, so and and that says, you, and you don't have any pictures, you don't have any written text. It's just, and
2: yeah. then I go to make a story about my grandfather.
0: Yeah, and so well, I heard this. Yeah, and I heard this, and it might be that if they interviewed your cousin. They'd say, "Well, I heard it this way." Yeah, exactly. So so we we want to hear the witnesses. We want to understand I, see, where but, in history and in geography, where on the timeline, where geographically. I take, ex- I take
2: I take exception to that though, Rob. I don't know if I'd call them witnesses. You can't say
0: that. that. Well, if they're a witness, they're testifying to something, but we're recognizing their position with respect to the thing they're they're testifying.
2: Okay, uh, fair enough. So so and and I'll 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 give you that one. Um, so Halal, yeah, they're not officially a witness. So so according to thir- third century witnesses. We have these two schools of thought. You have the school of Halel and the school of Shammai. Now, this might be very basic for a lot of people that are listening to us, but hang on with us here because this is going to get interesting.
0: Which are called Pharisees because there's also these same rabbis are talking about differences between Pharisees and Sadducees, right? And so, so it's within the Pharisaic camp.
2: Yeah. That yeah, absolutely.
0: That we're kind of imagining this school of Hillel and school of Shep- uh, Shema. So right? there,
2: yeah, there was, so there was, uh, well, and there wasn't just two schools. There was a lot of schools. There was, uh, the sikari there was the, uh, Pharisees, the Sadducees, there was the scenes. Um,
0: I'm a Catholic, which is the best of all the religions, really, because we have the most rules and the best clothes.
2: Um, so
0: and now, but see, now you're citing another, right? Where, yeah. What's the witness for that is Josephus. So, anyway.
2: Yeah, okay, yeah, exactly. So, so, uh, but they're so applying, but, we're
0: already applying these rules here. Hang
2: on just a sec. We have, we have more witnesses to the Sicarii and, and whatnot than, uh, than just Josephus, though. Don't we?
0: Yeah, I don't know about that.
2: I don't know about them. Okay. Anyway, let's move on. So, so <laughs> we're going so many down so many rabbit trails right now. So, basically, what the third century witnesses say is that Hillel made up these seven rules. Whether or not he actually did or not, that also is debatable.
0: They could just be it could have been, attributed to yeah, Hillel because Hillel... Some,
2: some guy in the third century could have written them down and been like, check it out, this is from Rabbi Hillel. And we don't know. We we really don't know. But anyway, that's not the point. So so Hillel, they're called the Hillel, like, the seven laws of Hillel. That's what they have. What What Rob and I want to do is, we want to give you the seven laws of the of Rob and Caleb. The seven laws of Rob and Caleb.
0: And these do come from us.
2: These do come from us. That's right. We wrote these down yesterday.
0: Well, we might. We might. There might be oral tradition that we modify them over time. We re, re- refrain the right or retain the right to reword slash modify these yeah, seven.
2: That's right. You don't have to agree with us on these at all. But that's not a requirement. That's not a requirement. But what we're but what we're trying to do with this? Here's what we're trying to do. Okay, we're gonna tell you all how we approach anything in terms of uh, theology, in terms of history, all these kind of things. We uh, have to ask certain questions. So if someone says to me, "What do you think about?" and we can take any of our old show topics. What do you think about the Copper Scroll Project? What do you think about? What do you think about, I mean, anything, just take, you know, any one of our old show topics. This is what I would be looking for. This is the test that I'm going to give. And what I hope is, is that if you agree with some of these, then they might be in your mind when you're on YouTube looking at, you know, the next great video by whoever, or when you're sitting in your church uh, pew and listening to the, pastor up front, you might be listening for some of these things. Um, If you don't agree, okay, that's fine. That just means that we have a different hermeneutic. And a hermeneutic hermeneutic is just a fancy word for interpretation. Um, It just means that we, we use different ways of interpreting things. But I want to give our listeners the seven things to look for. And in future shows, Okay and what we might do today is we might actually take a topic depending on how much time we use here but we might take a topic and we might just look at some uh some of these clips that I've taken and we'll try to apply some of these seven laws and then if you if you, uh, you know, you can disagree with us all you want, you can agree with us, that's totally fine. But basically, uh, you know, this is this is to try to give a new kind of approach to how we're going to approach things on this show. And if you if we're listening to a clip ever and you hear this sound, it means that we think that one of the laws have been violated, okay? That's also one of my notification sounds, so if I forget to turn off my notifications, you might hear that. Uh, anyway, okay. So, law number one. Here we go. I feel like we should have a drum roll. Do I have a drum roll somewhere? I don't, man, how unprepared I am. Okay, uh, never mind the drum roll. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Rule number one: Uh, Are they citing primary sources? Yeah, you know, we j- just kind of talked about this already. What's a primary source as opposed to just a source? So, I think I can take a, a good a good example. Um. Recently, we've talked about the Copper Scroll Project. One of the things that they that the Copper Scroll Project uses to try to reflect back into 400 BCE is this 7th century CE work. Okay, so now we're over 2000, 17th. 17th, I'm sorry, 17th century CE work.
0: Kabbalistic, uh,
2: yeah, work. Yeah, they try to use this this work to try to t- to shed light on something that happened that they say happened in 400 BCE. Okay, that's not a primary witness. That's not a, that's not a witness at all. You know, that's like me. That's
0: like Mormonism. Yeah. That's like all of a sudden this guy in the 1800s has all these texts that no one else can look at. That he have a history of like that happened BC, you know, or like two thousand years prior.
2: I don't even think it's like that because, but Joe Joe Smith was actually saying God gave him revelation. What this work is saying is is that it's been handed down. So it's basically like me saying I I can talk to you about the life of Peter, you know, and tell you things that happened that aren't written in the Bible because, you know, just it's because oral tradition. Oral tradition. Yeah, oral tradition. Uh, And the Catholic Church does that a little bit, don't they? With the whole Pope, you know, he was the first. Peter was the first Pope, you know. And we don't really have we don't have anything in the Bible that tells us that,
0: right? And that that's kind of like how you know every religion kind of creates its heroes. That's just like Hillel becoming a hero in the Babylonian Talmud. All of a sudden, Hillel we know all this stuff about Hillel. Well, it's like at the same time we have the Catholic Church saying all this stuff about Peter. Being a pope and stuff, and it's like, wait a minute. If we go back and look, I'm not sure we can say all that <laughs> exactly. So, primaries.
2: Bing. bing. A primary source, yes. Uh, I suppose I should still have that up here. A primary source would be something. <laughs> primary source would be something like, and and a lot of people will say something like, "Oh, a primary source is the rabbis." Well, the rabbis are more of a primary source than a 17th century CE work. They're closer, for sure, but they're still not, I, I still wouldn't say that they're like, they're not eyewitnesses. A primary source for sure would be the Bible, obviously. that That is the primary source. Um, so anyway, uh, rule number one, are they citing primary sources? Rule number two, are they repeatedly referencing Strong's numbers? The, and we're talking about the person who would be teaching whatever it is that we're looking at. And... I once again if this isn't these laws don't necessarily mean that the, that a person's that what they're saying is discounted a person can reference strong's numbers you know and actually somebody the other day was like uh on Facebook somebody uh wrote something in a response to somebody about like oh this you know this strong's number says this. And then at the bottom of it, they were like, sorry, Caleb egg <laughs> Like I was getting, you know, like, oh yeah. Oh, I'm using yeah, Strong's numbers. No apology necessary. We're not saying Just
0: that. Use, use the tool according to its purpose. You know? Yeah, exactly. If you can't, if you can't remember where I, I think where Strong's is really helpful. Like you're, you know, you don't have a digital computer, which, you know, a lot of us have gotten used to and you're trying to remember where a verse is and you can remember maybe two or three words of it. And now, if your strongs is for King James, you're gonna to have to be in the King James mode if it's an n i v or whatever but you look up that word and you can that can help you find the reference and then you can actually look up and see quickly what the Hebrew root was or Greek basic word was for that, and maybe you can find a couple other places where that's also where that base basic root is used. That's it. It doesn't teach you grammar it doesn't teach you how to know which word is uh the one to, is the right definition for that particular context, it doesn't give you any of that, you only get that by learning the language itself. It's like the word, you know, pick the word bad in English. Well, bad, I can say, you know, but if we had a strong concordance for today, you know, like what the word bad meant, it would mean, one of the meanings would mean like good, or it would mean something broke. Well, if it was 1990, it would mean good. But My keyboard's bad, or my headphones are bad. Or it could mean like evil. You see what I mean? It. it, it which, and then you're going to say, "Oh, which one of these meanings is right?" Well, you have to understand the culture, the history, larger grammar of the language, and then you know you can narrow it down. Um, but anyway, the, but I'll, the, I'll
2: stop. no, you're fine. The point is, is that Strong's concordance has its place, and we and we recognize that completely. We're not telling you to throw your your Strong's away. Um and the other thing that we 're but but and we're not saying that a person who uses strongs predominantly is going to have everything wrong. what I'm saying is that these are just things to look for if 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 someone's using strongs as their lexicon, then that should maybe be a red red flag It doesn't mean that you should throw them out, throw the person out. It just means that should be a red flag okay uh we'll we'll move on number three are the claims sensational? If it sounds too good to be true. It probably is. And this isn't necessary. you know, there have been some really, really big discoveries. You know, somebody would have said, and this happened. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, they were like, hey, we found all these, we found all these uh, manuscripts from, you know, anywhere from 300 to 100 BCE. And scholars were like, yeah, right. No, you didn't. You know, that? I mean, that's basically what happened. They were just like, no, that's not possible. But, you know, then the testing began and all that kind of stuff and come to find out, yeah, they, they were. So it doesn't mean, once again, this isn't saying that if a person makes a huge claim that it's automatically discounted. It just means it should be, there should be flags that go up and we should start asking some more questions. Okay. So sensational claims, things like I've, you know, I've found the, uh, I've found the place where the. Uh, the treasure from the Copper Scroll is hidden. That would be a sensational claim. What was one that you didn't you see one the other day, Rob? I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of them out there. You can go to all sorts of all sorts of I'm, different sites. Probably,
0: but I'm not. It's not come to mind.
2: Okay. Anyway, let's keep going. Number four: Are they teaching something that they have training in? And to go on the back of that, are they rejecting all other scholars in that field? Once again, this doesn't necessarily discount a person, but the point is is that if you have a person who's an engineer and all of a sudden they decide to be to uh stop being an engineer and become a uh you know a bible scholar uh, the the question would have to be raised although you might have been very good at, at being an engineer how much training do you actually have in the biblical
0: languages right and this is a, this goes to recognizing that Yeshua sets up in the body of Messiah. One of the one of the uh, giftings or callings, if you want to use that kind of terminology, is teachers. They're not the whole body of Messiah are teachers in the same way. That's right. Now we all can learn. We're all students, but when we respect the place of teachers, we understand those are people who have basically poured out their souls towards the trajectory of of learning. Biblical things, and even people who are students of Scripture aren't necessarily always teachers. So, in one degree, we're always we're all teachers. But when we think of teachers that we go to to learn from, that's what we're talking about here. Um, You know, there's and it's clear that there are people who wanted to be teachers that shouldn't be teachers from the Bible itself. You know, people who uh, were Wanting to, you know, in the book of Acts, there's people that come in like wolves among the flock and wanted to take disciples after them. And they, they weren't for Yeshua. They were just wanted disciples. So the area of teaching, we have to up our up our notch a little bit on our expectations. And I think that's what these seven rules are. Hope, that's what we're hoping will help equip everybody. These are rules that we're all going to use. And you might use some of them, some of them you might not like, but we'll see.
3: It's time to meet our creator. Hail to thee, O Lord. Actually, it's pronounced Lloyd.
2: All these years we've been saying it wrong. Okay, so let's move on. Are they uh, using anachronistic arguments? The word anachronistic basically that just means are they, and we talked about this a little bit earlier. Are they using something from like the third or fourth century and projecting it back?
0: Yeah, it's back to the timeline issue.
2: Yeah, so basically, if you're if you say, oh well, this was going on in the first century, and somebody says, well, how do you know that? And you say because the the Talmud says it was. Well, the Talmud's not until late, like four or five hundred. And so you can't take something from the Talmudic, Talmudic time and say that it was happening 500 years prior. Things change over a, a, a period of time. You know, it would be like saying that uh, that things back in the 1500s were the same as they are now. Or that we can take our lives today and project them back onto the 1500s. It doesn't work like that. Um, so that's what an anachronistic argument is. Are people using anachronistic arguments, and this happens a lot with messianic Judaism or messianic faith, however you want to say it a messianic belief and the reason that happens so much is because people seem to be enamored with the rabbis in ways that perhaps they shouldn't be, and so uh they try to use the rabbis as being uh first century you know as being the same as the first century, which is just not the way that things work. Anything else to say on that, Rob no. Okay, number six. Is it based on the Bible? Or are they basing an entire doctrine on one verse?
0: Now, these are not in any specific order. Yeah, none Some of this people is... might say, "Hey, that should be first. and I agree. You know, I yeah. mean, so these seven are not. The order we're giving them is not necessarily a priority. They're all they all touch each other. This, like a,
2: this might sound like two different two different laws or rules, whatever you want to say, but it's actually not. So is it based on the Bible? Yeah, it, that should be obvious. However, there are a lot of teachers today that are basing things not on the Bible. Their whole argument is based on Josephus and Philo or or on the rabbis or whatever, you know, different okay. ends of the spectrum. Uh, so is it based on the Bible? That's one thing that I really like about Dr. James White is when you listen to him debate, and I was talking to Adam Smith about this the other day, when you when you hear Dr. White debate, he is always referencing Bible verses. You have, you know, the guys that he are, is debating are always saying things like, oh, well, the church fathers say, or, you know, tradition says, or whatever, and White's always going back to the Bible. So it should be based on the Bible. But on the other end of the spectrum of that, are they basing an entire doctrine on one verse? that shouldn't happen you you have multiple witnesses within the bible just as you do and anything else so if you're trying to put a whole doctrine on one verse uh probably not the best um okay and then finally last but definitely not least and this could be number one as well like rob said these aren't in any specific order you have did yeshua use this way of teaching so for instance you know uh we've talked about parades before on this show if you don't know what Pardase is, um, it's just it's a mystical way of interpretation um, that a single word has multiple meanings, and you have to figure out what meaning you know it has it has five levels of meaning, and you can you can apply each level of meaning to different situations. Um, that's four,
0: particularly with parades, but it's the idea of that there's a specific interpretive uh, system, and then you have to like identify which one it belongs to. But the point I've heard people, you know, talk about that sort of thing. Like, I I know these two levels of this verse, but I don't know these other two levels, and that it's governing the way they're thinking about the text.
2: Yeah, exactly. But you don't see Yeshua doing that. You don't, (laughs) at least, not the way that Pardase is being used within the Jewish communities. Anyway, so those are those are these. I feel like we should have some kind of like great music that goes right now um i don't i don't think i have any well let's see here do i have any music music what do i have in my music <laughs> uh no i don't this is what you call dead air time
1: <laughs>
2: okay so that's uh that's our seven our seven rules of uh approaching any new teaching okay okay are they citing primary sources? Are they repeatedly referencing Strong's as their interpretation or as their lexicon? Are the claims sensational? If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Are they teaching something that they have training in? Are they rejecting all other scholars in that field? Are they using anachronistic arguments? Is it based on the Bible? Are they using an entire doctrine uh basing an entire doctrine on one verse? And finally, did Yeshua use this way of teaching? So those are the seven laws or the seven rules that we are going to use Basically in our shows from here on out and uh, we are going to, yeah, continually go back to those rules. If you disagree with them, that's fine. Um, but basically we've, we've leveled the playing field here because if you disagree with us, that's fine. But these are some of the flags that are going to go up when we're listening to different clips and whatnot. Um, and so that's, so now, you know, kind of how we're approaching things. Okay. Okay. Let's see here. Um, oh, what did I do? I got out of my FX. There we go. Okay, so one of the email... We'll move now. We'll move to an actual topic. We, we might make this quick. I don't know how long this is going to be, but basically we've... I, I use that word too much. Sorry, folks. I'm going to I'll try to get away from that, uh, basically. Um, I had somebody email me and ask me about the location of the temple in Jerusalem, which I thought was a little bit of a weird... It's kind of a weird request. Um, I had never heard this argument before. And uh, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not going to come out and just say this is wrong. What I'd like to do is just uh, listen to some different clips and then uh, apply the new rules that we just uh, talked about. And we'll let our listeners decide for themselves. I, I mean, I'll definitely weigh in and on it, of course. But uh, and I am going to lean on you
0: heavily here, Caleb, because I don't really know much about this topic.
2: Well, that's fine. Actually, uh, th- this will be good because you and I can listen to these clips together and uh, just kind of talk about them. So, basically, here is the argument in a nutshell. Okay, we the Temple Mount that is the traditional site of the Temple Mount, um. People are saying. Some people are saying that that is not actually where the temple was in the first. Well, for the first temple or the second temple. Um, what? And this is a predominant view, or this was made very famous by a guy named Doctor Ernest Martin, who now is with the Lord. Uh, Doctor Martin came up with this, and uh, he was challenged heavily on this. And the first thing that I did was, actually, I asked my friend Adam to send me what he knew about this because he had done a little bit of research on this. Um, so, uh, he sent me some things. I started doing some digging. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying to get into my notes here, which is a little bit difficult. Uh, so basically there's two, there's my word again. Oops. Uh, there are, t- there are two main reasons. There's one main reason that this whole thing came to light. He takes this, Martin takes this verse in Matthew 24 two, and I'm reading out of the NSB. It says, and he said to them, he is they're talking about Yeshua. Yeshua said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Okay, so they take this this verse, and they say, well, obviously, the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, where all the Jews pray in Israel, th- that's still there. That's still there. So, obviously... Wait, what are you doing over there, Rob? <laughs> are you, you, writing a pa- you writing a paper over there? <laughs> I'm taking notes. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, so what Martin says is that now <laughs> this this uh, this cannot be true because uh, you know this can't be the place because the walls are still standing. Now, full disclosure from the very beginning, I always took this verse to mean that the, that the temple and the temple's buildings would not be left remaining.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's.
2: I didn't. I didn't because the the te- the the
0: it says literally the buildings of the temple
2: the the wall the walls are part of the complex it's not the outer complex it's not part of the temple in my mind at least maybe i'm i mean maybe 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 our listeners think differently but i always i just always assumed and maybe i shouldn't assume but i just always assumed that that he was talking about the actual temple itself and the temple's buildings the temple and complex in
0: fact those are what
2: and those are not standing anymore
0: right that's what was flattened
2: yeah exactly um so the people, Martin came up with the idea that, that no, this is that this is not that the Temple Mount that we have always known as the Temple Mount is not the Temple Mount. In fact, this was the Antonia Fortress, okay, and that um, the Temple Mount was actually in the city of David. Now, for those of you who have not been to Israel or who have not been to Jerusalem and to the Old City of Jerusalem, or across uh, the Mount of Olives. Uh, I don't even know really how to try to explain this, but there's basically this valley. There's this valley that goes around, and you're looking up at the at the Temple Mount or the traditional side of the Temple Mount. And the city of David is down always, okay? And it's in this valley, essentially, that kind of looks up uh, towards the Temple Mount, the traditional side of the Temple Mount. What Martin is saying and what uh, all the other people who are kind of jumping on board with this teaching is that that there the, the that the temple was actually down in the city of David, and not up on the Temple Mount, the traditional side of the Temple Mount? Okay, so that's the argument. There, the main one of the main uh, focal points of the city of David is this spring. There's a spring that's in the city of David. Now, I will admit fully that I have not watched Doctor Martin's uh, DVD on this. Okay so I'm only taking I'm taking bits and pieces from what I've gathered and uh trying to kind of piece it all together. There's this spring in the in in the city of David and one of the arguments is that the temple would be where the water source is. So they'd put the because there was so much blood and whatnot on the temple mount wherever that may have been that they needed to wash all this away. And so they're saying that it needed to be over this spring and not, you know, a ways from a spring. There's problems with that in my mind. Um, but we'll talk about those in a few seconds. So, um, I have clips. I have clips from several different people here. The first person is going to be Andrew Gabriel Roth, who wrote the Aramaic New Testament. Um, I'm The only reason I pulled Roth was because he made a very concise video about this. And... Um, These are some of the claims that he made about this, okay? So, let's listen to... um, Let's listen to Roth. We'll listen to Andrew Gabriel Roth here first. Here we go.
3: As Ken Klein will explain in the DVD, Jewish tradition is vehement and unmovable on the idea that the temple mount is under... That the original temple, rather is under the Al-Aqsa
2: Mosque. Okay, the only reason I pulled this clip was because that right there is not completely true. Um, There's actually three main opinions on where the temple could be within the Temple Mount. So maybe I'm splitting hairs here, and and maybe I shouldn't be doing that. But when he says uh, Jewish tradition is adamant that it's under the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Uh, That's not necessarily true. The temple actually, there's a significant amount of people who actually believe, Jewish people as well, who actually believe that the Holy of Holies was not where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is, but actually quite a ways out from there. So um, the idea that Jewish tradition has this set idea of where the temple actually was within the Temple Mount is not necessarily true. Okay, but let's move on to Roth's second clip. Um, I want to make sure that... Okay, here we go. Let's try this one.
3: That if this was right, the entire future history of the world could change. And I agreed with them. But I said, well, you know, I'm not sure. So I had to overcome my own predispositions, as well as my Jewish tradition, to try to understand this great mystery. Where was the lost temple
0: of the Jews?
2: Okay, where was hang on? I want to pause it right there. I think
0: I, we should every time it says a great mystery, <laughs> I'm I also think we should we,
2: we need it. We need a sound every time there's a great mystery to actually, discover
0: a great mystery.
2: Actually, one of the things, well, and that's kind of sensationalism, but it, one of the things that I would take issue with here, let's back it up. I want to listen to this one more time. Listen to what he says at the very end of that. That, that, that this isn't the full clip, this clip is a minute long, and we're only 23 seconds into it. Listen oh, to what okay. he says at the very end, though
3: great mystery. Where was the
0: lost temple of the Jews?
2: I'm not sure what he means by that. And maybe somebody can... Uh, maybe, the lost...
0: Uh, the, 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 the lost... There, there was no lost temple. Well, the temple got destroyed. Maybe, he, destroyed.
2: maybe when he says lost, let's give him the benefit of the doubt here. Maybe when he says lost, what he mean, means is we lost it. As in, it, it was destroyed. Oh, lost
0: destroyed temple.
2: Yeah, but he uses the word lost temple. And it almost sounds like he's trying to set, set it up as if, you know, we don't... No one... Like it's disputed. Like everyone's searching for this temple. That's how it kind of sounds. But maybe that's, okay, let's keep going because maybe that's not, maybe that wasn't the intention. Let's keep going with this clip.
3: Well, when I played the DVD, the first thing that stood out for me was a statement by Ken Klein that people were not listening to Josephus. Josephus, critical historical witness, someone that I read and research almost every day of my life, Josephus is descended from priests and kings on both sides of his family tree and is our best eyewitness to the first century, the times of Yeshua or Jesus of Nazareth, the times of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And so when I realized that the current temple models were not listening to Josephus, I needed to listen again.
2: Okay, the reason I, maybe that was not a good place to put a bell our bell there, but uh, the reason I I rang the bell was because he says that Josephus is our best witness to the first century. I don't think I would agree with that. I think our best witness to the first century is the apostolic scriptures. Right? Yep. It sounds like it sounds like you're in the middle of a paper over there. What's going on? I mean, do you agree with me, or you think that? What do you think about his statement? Do you think that that uh,
0: I I like that he's he's putting an emphasis on paying attention to Josephus?
2: But do you? But okay, let me ask you this: because you you,
0: you know, relative,
2: you know, you know, Josephus a lot better than I do. Okay, this this much I know: I know that Josephus has some historical errors that we know are historical historical errors, right?
0: Yeah, well, he's it, Joseph, what is Josephus trying to do? I mean, he's got his own agenda, right? He's living in Rome. He's kind of a, a turncoat.
2: He's not kind of a turncoat. He is a turncoat. I mean,
0: I mean, I'm just thinking we got. He's writing from. He's been kind of given a luxe life, in Roman high society, and he's he tells stories of the Bible, in ways that would be appealing to to Roman ears. I'm not
2: saying that we that we need and to... so
0: he's he's telling a story for a for a purpose, and when he describes, he you know he is an important witness. I agree with Roth on that. But oh, absolutely! He's certainly not a witness to the days of Yeshua. I mean, that's there's at least a generation there in between.
2: But my point is, okay, can can we just take... There's a reason that that, uh, Josephus' writings are not in our canon.
1: They're not
0: in rabbinic canon either. Yeah, but why? I mean, it was early Christians that preserved Josephus.
2: It seems to me like, uh, you know... It's kind of almost like rabbinical writings. Yeah, it's a, it's something that we need to take into account. It's something that we need to look at. It definitely tells us something about the time that he lived in. There's no doubt about that. Um, but my question is, is can Josephus be trusted 100%? And um, so this is an article that I pulled. And this guy talks about Josephus here. This is, uh, it, this is called a response. Actually, uh, Adam Smith sent this to me. Uh, it's called a response to Dr. Ernest M- L. Martin by, uh, who was this? Uh, Rittmeier doc- Rittmeier. Yeah, Dr. Lean Rittmeyer. Okay. Rittmeier. He, he says this about, about, uh, Josephus and he's talking, he's not talking about Roth here by any stretch of the imagination. He's talking about Dr. Martin. And that's who Roth is talking about as well. So Rittmeyer says this, The same careless treatment is is applied to the writings of Josephus. Josephus does uh, refer to a temple mount, which once was a square having sides of one stadium each. each. Martin's quotes are from Antiquities 896 and and 15398-400 and refer to the precinct built by Solomon. However, in War Five One Eighty Four and One Eighty Five, Josephus writes, "quote In cor- in course of ages, however, through the constant additions of the people to the em- embankment, the hilltop by this process of leveling. Okay, so anyway, Martin th- what uh, Rittmeyer is saying here is is this is to a different objection. Um, he says this point is ignored by Martin. The Mishnah also states the temple. Okay, did
0: I?" Um, ba, 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 ba. I'm, on, I'm on the website you're on. I'm just kind of scrolling here.
2: Sorry, guys. Okay, so he says later on, and he's talking about, actually, I have another quote too. Um, he says, the archaeology evidence also negates uh, such possibilities. No, I don't want to go to that. Anyway, so basically he talks about, what he's talking about here is Josephus and how Martin basically doesn't take into account all of Josephus. He only takes into account a little bit of a Josephus. So Josephus clarifies. Um, Josephus seems to only be giving a rough estimate. I didn't pull this whole thing. Anyway, uh, the point is, is that Rittmeier seems to take exception to uh, Martin's looking at Josephus. And I'm not saying one way or the other. All I'm saying is, is that it seems like there's disp- there's dispute over uh, what exactly all of the evidence that Josephus was, was uh, bringing to light. So let's move on. Let's keep going. I have another clip from, oh yeah, I, check this out. I didn't, I didn't understand this, Rob. Maybe you can shed some light on this for me, okay? Listen to what Roth says here, and, and I'll, I'll explain my confusion here in a few seconds. Um, but listen to what he says about this.
3: For me, one of the defining pieces of evidence was, when we found Hezekiah's tunnel, the water source is going so far away from where the temple was supposed to be as to make it impractical. If you've got two million Jews that need to ritually cleanse or mikvah themselves every time they go for the temple, then it makes sense to have the temple line up with where Hezekiah's water tunnel ends. But the current location for the Temple Mount is a third of of a mile in the opposite direction.
2: Okay, maybe Roth knows something that I don't, and maybe, maybe you can shed some light on that. I don't understand why in the world the temple would need to line up with Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah's tunnel was not to bring water to the, to the temple mount. Hezekiah's temp, temp, uh, tunnel was built. So when, uh, when Israel was cut off so that they could get water
0: to survive, yeah. to
2: survive, not to, not to do ritual purities. Right. Am I wrong?
0: No, I think, I think that, you know, and this is an area, like I said, this is an area I, I haven't researched, but, I think that the idea of the there were mikvahot right around the temple that were gathered from rainfall, and not always dependent on you know.
2: Well, I read an article. I did read an article. Sorry to cut you off, but I did read an article that said that basically the the mikvahs right in the temple com, in the traditional temp, temple complex would not have serviced all the people during festival seasons. So they had these pools and these are probably the pools that were that are talked about in um in the apostolic scriptures where the where the lame went to try to bathe and whatnot to be healed mm-hmm. uh but they they had these huge these huge pools that people would actually use as mikvahs um that were sourced by by uh natural bodies of water so it wasn't just those mikvahs but yeah you're right i mean i, I the mikvahs at the temple were serviced by rainwater so i'm not sure why uh and maybe I'm missing something. Maybe Roth, uh, you know, maybe maybe he knows something that I don't. But you know, Hezekiah's tunnel, in my mind, doesn't have anything to do with the temple at all. It never it it, it never has. But I haven't done a whole lot of research on. It, so maybe one of our listeners can can shed some light on that. Uh, you can always email us and, and tell us why that why why would Hezekiah's tunnel matter when it came to the Temple Mount and bring water to the Temple Mount. Um the other thing is is that the the notion by Martin that that there needed to be a spring at the Temple Mount to service that amount of water it just doesn't seem to to hold weight and the reason why is because there was an intricate water system up on the traditional side of the Temple Mount and basically the way that it pumped I did it I did a little bit of research on this it's it's actually really fascinating and I if somebody has more information on this I would love to see it but basically the way they had these natural water sources and they had these cisterns that were quite a ways away and they were they basically were up from the temple mount so the way that this person in the article that I was reading explained it was it's just like a water tower the yes. wa- the water from the from the temple mount that came to the temple mount was at a 64 foot incline so you have 64 feet of pressure coming down to the, uh, you know, water pressure coming down to the, to the Temple Mount. And that made it come out of these cisterns at a good rate. So they could flood the traditional Temple Mount, you know, the, the place where it's traditionally said they, they think that they could flood the Temple Mount extremely quickly and then drain it into the Kidron Valley. So, um, I don't think that water at the Temple Mount was really the traditional side of the Temple Mount. I don't see how that was an issue. I don't see how that was a problem. Um, but you know, once again, I'm, I'm willing to hear, you know, I haven't watched Martin's entire DVD. So, um, the next
0: good. What is good about what Roth's doing is he's at least citing his source. Now we we might, we might not, uh, we might say, Hey, you know, well, you're, 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 you're leaning too heavily on Josephus. Uh, we could, we could suggest that, but or, or and, and then this gets into Josephus scholarship, because you have Josephus scholars that disagree with each other on how to read Josephus. So, uh, but the idea is, it's, it's a witness to the late 1st century. Josephus is writing in the 90s, early 100s, right, probably, um, looking back. And so he's definitely an important witness to uh, the post-Second Temple era.
2: Okay, I want to move on to a different person uh, because there's another guy who is somewhat known within the archaeological world and and not necessarily uh, maybe more as a treasure hunter. I don't know. Um, I haven't... His last name's Cornuke. Um, I've really not encountered this gentleman much either. So, uh, but let's listen to what he, he says. He takes Martin's view as well. And um, let's see here.
1: So what do we have in the south? We have the old Jebusite city of David. That's where David conquered uh, the old Jebusite city about 3,000 years ago. And it says in Second Samuel 5, 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion that is the city of David. So the city of David is the stronghold of Zion. That's where the threshing floor is. Joel 3.17 says, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion. That's the stronghold of Zion. My holy mountain, that's the temple. Scripture in just those two verses is telling us where the temple is located. And, of course, Second Chronicles tells us it, it, it's on the threshing floor in the city of David. So I can go through Bible verse after Bible verse and historian after historian, and they're all saying it should be in the city of David. In fact, Scripture says in Joel 3.18, A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord. We're talking about the Gihon Springs here. That's where uh, that's where zadok the priest anointed uh, King Solomon there in the city of David. So,
2: okay. So I want to I want to uh, highlight first of all the one thing that I really like about Cornuke in this quote is that he's trying to go to the Bible. That's good, you know. He's he's trying to rest on the Bible, um, and he goes. He once again talks about the. What is it? The court Hone spring or whatever there in the city of David. So he's, he's, he's trying to, he's trying to set up this case that the, uh, pardon me. He's trying to set up this case that, that, that Zion, but the temple was in Zion and Zion was the city of David. Okay. And that's the case that he's building. So back to that article that I, uh, that I found by Rittmeyer that was sent to me by, uh, by, uh, Smith, uh, by Rittmeyer. Uh, he says this, he says, the archeological evidence also negates such a possibility. And he's talking about that the temple was in the city of David. Reich and Shukon, who recently excavated the Gihon Spring and its near surroundings, found massive remains of Jebusite fortified reservoirs and a tower, both of which were in use at least to the end of the first uh, temple period. These remains cannot possibly have belonged to a temple Solomon built. David uh, David built an altar on the place where the angel stood overlooking the city of David and was the location of Solomon's temple. This means that the angel who was going to destroy Jerusalem stood outside the city of David, Zion, on higher ground. That's in 2 Samuel 24, 16. David built an altar at this place, where, where was located the threshing floor of Aaron, Aaron. I don't know how to say that name. Threshing floors are never found inside cities or in valleys, but always near mountaintops where the wind will blow away the chaff. The temple, therefore, had to be built outside of what was the then known as Zion on and higher up the mountains. That makes sense to me. What do you think about that, Robert? Yeah, you...
0: and back where you don't know, talk in parallelism where it says the city of Z- David and then Zion. Uh, Hebrew parallelism doesn't mean that they're always exactly the same thing. It means generally that these things are Are related to each other. They're closely related to each other. It does in a parallelism. It doesn't mean that it's ident that it's identical.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's listen to another clip then by Core Duke. I know we're going. What 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 time are we at here? I guess it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Well, it's not going to matter when we're live either because we have way too we have more time than we'll ever use. I think. Okay, so uh this is going to be an interesting one. Here we go. Oh wait, I want to. I'm trying to get into new habits here so that when we go live, the habits are in place. Here we go.
1: So, one of the arguments against the Temple Mount being the original site of Solomon's Temple is you got that retaining wall, which is a pretty impressive piece. It's still in place, yet we're told that not one stone was going to be left standing upon another. Well, there you got a whole bunch of stones we already talked standing about that. one on uh, top of the other. You got this business about the spring. And by the way, one other comment, Bob, before we cycle back to the location of the temple. The the stone that's now encased in the dome of the rock, where Muhammad's night uh, trip was supposed to have been launched from uh, with his horse, uh, I- is it possible that that might? If it was encased in the fortress Antonio, uh, could it have some connection with Pilate and Christ's appearance before Pilate? Ab- absolutely. If if you look at the Bordeaux pilgrim, who's the the strongest eyewitness in 333. He says, while looking east from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, he saw stone walls at the foundation going down to the Trophonian Valley, and uh, he describes it as the uh, uh, as, as, as the Roman Fort Praetorium, which he, he said was the place where Jesus was sentenced to death. So get this, if, if he's looking east, if you go east from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today, all you see is the long wall of the Roman Fort. You don't see the temple. That's what he said he saw. And he said that Roman fort is where Jesus was tried on the, on the he... top of the rock, the, the the highest point of the rock.
0: Yes. So, so some guy in the 300s, some guy in the 4th century, and you tell him that's where Jesus was tried, and we just take his word for
2: it? Oh, and that's why I rang the bell.
0: Oh, yeah. It's like—
2: It's not a primary witness. Do you
0: realize by the 4th century how many— Places had been set up already that this is where this happened and that this is where this happened. You know, that people are already, by that time, you've got a tourism business based on pilgrims who are coming to the Holy Land to try to see where things happened.
2: Well, and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was already built by then. Constantine already built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre.
0: he built. They built and,
2: a lot of, and stuff. Even, and even by that point, okay, we're the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. For those who might not know, and this, uh, you know, if you're if you're a Christian who's if you're not Messianic, if you're a Christian who's been to Jerusalem, you, uh, you know, the, even you might know of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre was built by Constantine in the in the three hundreds, early three hundreds, and uh, Constantine's mother said that that location was where the messiah was crucified
0: or buried right or, no crucified or, or actually
2: maybe you're right crucified and buried um and so there's been a lot to, now maybe I'll tip my cards a little here uh get get your tomatoes ready i actually think that she was right believe it or not i actually think that the that the location of the church of the holy sepulcher i think that's right I have I, I have uh, reasons for that. However, I'm the first to admit that it's not a very popular view amongst some people. Um, it's it's highly debated. It's highly debated. But um, I think that there's good reason to think that the Holy Sepulchre was actually a place where where that could have happened. Anyway, the point is, is that it's all de- it's all debatable. And, uh, so, you know, Constantine builds this church up on this, on this place, which is now in the old city. It wasn't at the time he builds his church up there. It's the church of the Holy Sepulcher. But by the time, you know, so this is built by now and you're absolutely right. You have, you have these tourists coming into, uh, Jerusalem to try to see these places where the Messiah lived and whatnot. Uh, I don't understand why a witness from the fourth century is going to say that, you know, his word is going to be better than anyone else's. Anyway, okay so uh, this is what our friend Ritmeyer had to say about this theory that the uh, that the temple the current location that is accepted by pretty much everyone as the Temple Mount was the Antonia fortress he says to accommodate his theory Martin claims that the Herodian Temple Mount walls do not belong to the Temple Mount but to the Antonian fortress this idea is untenable however because Josephus said that Titus had quote ordered the troops to That were with him to raise the foundations of Antonia, an undertaking an undertaking that took seven days to complete. Indeed, and that's he gives a reference. Indeed, apart from the uh, rock scrap, nothing much has survived of the Antonia. The size of the Temple Mount is approximately thirty-five times that of, of the Antonia. If the Temple Mount remains, uh, if the Temple Mount remains, represent those of the Antonia, then it would have taken utterly; Im- Im- it would have been utterly impossible to destroy it in seven days. He goes on; I mean, and he basically, he gives some pretty strong ev- evidence. I would say pretty strong evidence, and from Josephus, nonetheless. So, uh, one of the things that I see is that this Martin fellow is uh, trying to use Josephus a lot when it supports his point, but when it doesn't support his point then Josephus isn't cited. And to me, that's not really doing justice to uh, your source. You know, if you're going to say that your source is right on one thing, but you're going to discount what he says about another, um, I don't know. Okay, so um, let's go on. Okay, we're at, what, number six here? Sorry. And I want to close this. Pardon me while I get this already here. Okay, here we go. Next clip.
1: That big stone wall complex over there.
2: Okay, so I should set this up. This is carduke once again. He's actually this is I found this video. He's actually on. I think he's on the Mount of Olives. He's looking out over uh, where the city of David would be, and then he's looking at the at the uh, traditional side of the temple complex, right? You know across the across this valley okay and he's pointing at the te- he's pointing at this temple complex and it's a little hard to hear i think this is done on a home camera anyway here you go
1: that big stone wall complex over there believed by almost every scholar in the last thousand years i am saying they are wrong <laughs>
2: Uh, okay. So that's one of the rules, isn't it? Uh, basically it's a flag. These are flags. It's, yeah. It's it's, way it's, it. it's a flag. It's not, I'm not saying that necessarily, you know, there have been people who have challenged uh traditional scholarship and they've been right. Okay. Um, uh, but this is definitely a flag. Carduc does not have his, uh, degree in, I don't believe he has a degree in, in archeology and by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Is he like a retired businessman. So, I, I believe I so. I,
2: I don't want to speak out of turn. I don't I don't know exactly what he did, but uh, uh, he's definitely going against all the archaeology. Okay, uh, so take that at you know take that however you want to. Okay, that's that's not a slam dunk either way. It's just
0: a fl- but these are you know yeah the these flag. are
2: th- these are all just flags. It's not I'm not saying that one way or the other. Okay, here's my final clip that I have, and this is actually from Roth again. Um, and so this is what Roth this is the reason that Roth believes that this is such a great discovery okay that this is such a this is a longer clip but this is his thinking on why this is so important okay here you go oh wait hang on I don't want to do it like that I'm sorry
3: there was a gentleman or I should say a high priest and a king named Simon the Hasmonean who cut down the real Mount Zion and who sanctified the area for where the temple was. That area is not under Arab control. That area was never redefiled. So it is still sanctified to this day. Now why is that important? It's important because the Jewish people can rebuild on that sanctified ground the right. for their temple, they can rebuild it tomorrow. And there is absolutely nothing the Arab authorities in the Middle East can do about it.
2: Okay, the clip's not over. He still has over a minute uh, in this clip. But uh, I find that interesting that Roth believes that this site I mean does Roth really believe that the Jews the Jewish people who uh, hail the Temple Mount as the Temple Mount I mean it's it's definitely oral tradition if nothing else I think there's much more than oral tradition but even in oral tradition uh, to me the Orthodox Jews are never going to say no our oral tradition is wrong this isn't the Temple Mount let's go build over here do you understand what I'm saying Rob?
1: Yeah
0: I, I hear you it's a it's a real bold claim, that's for sure.
2: Well, I mean, even even the claim aside, uh, no matter how bold it is, to think that the, that all of Judaism is all of a, gonna, all of a sudden going to say, look at it, oh, yeah, it must be, it, it's actually over here, let's build a new temple over here instead of the traditional site that we've thought has been the site of the Temple Mount for, what, 2,000 years? Uh, that, that, yeah, it's just, you know...
0: That, that's a sensational a, place, a little there's bit There's a place to called the Tem- like, Temple Institute. Yeah. You know, where did... They say it's just north of the mosque, right? Yeah. So, and, th- and if they're, you know, there are people who have really, you know, they've got a lot invested in their interpretation of oh yes. Yeah. So when someone comes out and says, oh, these guys are all wrong, and there is no conflict.
2: Well, I mean, my point is, is that even if Roth is right, and, and maybe not even, maybe we shouldn't put it on Roth, maybe even if Martin is right, and all the people who are following him are saying, yeah, he's right. Okay, even if that's true... The point is, is that the Jewish people, it doesn't matter how right Martin would be, might be, the Jewish people are never going to say that the Temple Mount is not the Temple Mount. Anyway, let's keep going with this.
3: In addition to that, what you all need to understand very, very clearly is that that means the entire infrastructure of Israel can come back, including the priesthood.
2: Okay, I also take exception to this. So he says at the end, well, okay, let's finish this clip because, um, okay, let's finish it, I guess. But keep that in mind. He says that the entire structure of, of Israel could come back, including the the priesthood. Okay?
3: Because it was already sanctified by an accepted authority while the second temple was standing. And that has been the big challenge for Jews today to try to reconstruct things. But with Simon the Hasmonean certifying and sanctifying that land from Second Temple times, all of it can come back exactly as it was in the time of Messiah, exactly as it was before the Romans destroyed everything in 70 AD. If our God has preserved his word, why wouldn't he preserve his land? Why wouldn't he preserve and allow for the temple to be rebuilt because when that happens it will usher in the return of Yeshua or Jesus the Messiah.
2: Okay, I have problems I have some problems with with that entire statement. First of all, let me ask a question to you Rob. Do you believe that if the temple is built that's going to to usher in the the Messiah?
0: I don't I don't think so.
2: Do you okay? Let me ask you. Let me ask you a different question. And these, these, I, I have not asked this to Rob. I don't know his position on this. Do you believe that the temple can be built before the Messiah comes?
0: Do I believe the temple can be built?
2: I mean, do you think that that's the way that the Scripture talks about it?
0: Well, it seems like it, when Yeshua is uh, weeping over Jerusalem, he says, "You know, you'll not see me again until they say." until you say, you know, Baruch don't Adonai. And I associate that with some sort of temple being in place. Do you see, I disagree
2: uh, with you. I don't think that I, uh, and I could be wrong on this, for sure. But personally, I think that the temple won't be built again until the Messiah comes. I I might be proved wrong, though. The Temple Institute sure thinks I will be. But I don't, for some reason, you know, in basically when you see in uh, Ezekiel's temple, you, see, you don't see a high priest ever. What you see is you see the Messiah.
0: Okay, but well, wait a minute. If Jews build another temple, that doesn't mean it's Ezekiel's temple.
2: So you that think that there could be a fourth mean, temple?
0: I, if they build a temple, they're just going to build a temple according to their knowledge, you know, and according to their authority. That doesn't necessarily mean... It's like what, you know, Ezekiel prophesied of his temple, before the second temple was ever built...
2: So do you think? But
0: and the second temple was built, and it didn't match Ezekiel. What Ezekiel said.
2: So, but do you think? Do you think that? Uh, it, okay, let's ask you. Let me ask you this question: Do you think that if the Jew, the the Jews today built a, a temple, would we as believers? Well, I mean, assuming that they would let us in, which they probably wouldn't. But well, here's the question: would, 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 would we want to go? Would we be right to go sacrifice there?
0: Well, here's it. Let's say. Let's say the Jews. Built a temple on the Temple Mount. Would some of these people that say that's the wrong place acknowledge it?
2: My question is: Is would you admit You know what I mean? would would you, they say, hey, am yeah.
0: not going to. That's the wrong place. They, get... they built it in the wrong place. Therefore, it's illegit." Is that the, is that the is that where we're getting to?
2: Well, the, I, I think the even more basic basic question is: If the if the Jewish people built a d- temple today at all, would you find it legit?
0: That's a good question. See, I would think they I would probably wouldn't think I was legit. If I, well, went. they wouldn't think we were yeah. legit. But the, so, so the the idea is, who's gonna Christian? If, it, it, if you're a, it's a divisive issue even within,
2: is
0: you know Orthodox Judaism. If it would we, be a divisive issue.
2: If we have Christians who are listening to us that aren't Messianics, their head are exploding right now. Yes, I, <laughs> I, 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 sh- I think we should clarify. I believe that that. Uh, we will do sacrifices again as believers in Yeshua, the Messiah. I believe that we will do sacrifices again. And yeah,
0: there's no, there's no inherent conflict biblically between, for believers in Yeshua to be uh, participating in temple. Uh,
2: I know that's a problem for people, but the, but for, for not, some people?
0: Not, there's no conflict. I mean, Paul, it's clear in Acts, Paul took a Nazarite vow. He, he covered the expenses for himself and for others, which involve... Like three animals per person, so I mean. See, there's... but
2: okay, so but so with that out of the way, let's. Okay. I mean, we're not going to argue uh, about that right now uh, with anybody. But the point is, is that yeah, we believe the temp- that that sacrifices will be done again. The point is, is that I think that uh, the temple would be legitimate, and the reason why is because Yeshua. You don't seem to have, and this is speculation. I I know we're getting into speculation, but it doesn't seem as though the shekinah the presence of the lord the cloud in the temple returned for the second temple we don't we don't see that we correct. don't we, we don't have any and we don't it doesn't seem as though we have the ark of the covenant in the second temple correct okay but yeshua still went to the second temple correct so and it seems as though he found that temple to be legitimate even though he disagreed with the with the uh, pharisees and sadducees correct Okay,
0: so and this this would be in, in uh, contrast with like some of the Essenes, or if we or say the Yahad right? Yeah, the, uh, the Qumran community that said no, they're they're illegitimate. So
2: exactly. So um, and we don't see Yeshua going out and being part of the Essene community and and uh, you know saying that the temple in in Jerusalem was mm-hmm. was null and void. Um. So right. if if you. If you think that uh, there won't be sacrifices again in the temple, I would commend you to go read the end of Zechariah. And also... Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. um, Okay, so... The other point is is that he said Roth said in that quote, and I'm not going to try to go find it again. I should have marked the time. Sorry. Uh, he said that that the whole priestly structure would be, you know, the structure of Israel would come back, including the priesthood. I don't think that that's act- here's one of the big problems. Here's now I'll try to unravel what I just said. That I think that it, it's a legit, legitimate temple if the Jews rebuild before the Messiah comes. Here's the biggest issue that you have with a, with a rebuilt temple. Everybody right now in the world. Is defiled by corpse, corpse defilement. So how are you going to everybody? So how are you going to get a priesthood that is cleansed from the ashes of the red he- heifer? Because you have to. Ha- it has to be a clean cow, and it has to be a clean priest administering the ashes of the red heifer to make the people clean. If you don't have a clean, if you don't have a clean priest, then you can't. He can't administer the ashes of the red heifer. So there's no way to get a clean priest now. The only way that you could get a clean priest is if you had something that made other things clean ritualistically clean and who and who or what does that the only thing that we know of of course is Yeshua the woman reaches out and grabs the hem of his garment what happens she's she's cleansed she doesn't make him defiled she becomes cleansed um is there anything else? If somebody touched the altar, but I, even then, I think that the the unclean people—I don't think that you could get cleansed from touching the altar, could you, or could you? I forget.
1: No,
0: no. T- that holiness is—you. You, it's a it's a conundrum that we're up against here with this issue of corpse defilement and.
2: But that's another reason I think that the Messiah will come back before the temple's built, because the only legitimate time that you could have a priest who is clean
0: is if he's But they can still they could still build it and say, you know, we're gonna do the best we can with what we have. I agree. And then and then maybe a prophet will rise up later and help us, you know, push it to the next
2: I'm not dogmatic about it, that's for sure. There's no doubt about that. That's all I have for uh, clips and basic. I mean, it might have seemed like it wasn't the greatest of uh, in-depth studies. And that's just because I didn't have time to get the DVD and watch the guy's DVD. But the point is, is that from the things that, uh, that we've listened to and from some of the quotes that we've seen, it just seems like there's way too much. You know, the, the way that, uh, that uh, Martin, Dr. Martin, seemed to present it, at least the way that the people are talking about it, is that is that it's a slam dunk. And the way that I hear uh, some of the other side talking about it is that it's not a slam dunk at, dunk at all. In fact, it seems as though Martin wasn't doing due diligence in in his sources to his sources. He was he was uh, cherry picking what he wanted from Josephus. That's the way it sounds from uh, Rittmeier and, and whatnot. And I read some other things. It, the, there's also you know it seems like some of the evidence that was that was brought up by Roth seems to me like it didn't take into consideration some of the uh you know some of the other archaeological evidence that we have for instance the water system that uh, accommodated the the traditional spot of the temple if that was if it was just a uh if it was just a outpost you know the antonia camp why in the world did they have the water system uh, so intricately built for it now, there's other things that Rittmeier brings up uh, you know he he ends he ends his his paper with a bunch of questions of you know if if this is true then why this why this why this why this why this i'm not saying that it's i can't be 100% dogmatic about it because you know i i just don't have all of the evidence in front of me but all i'm saying is is that i am not persuaded as of yet that the temple mount is really in the city of david and not in the traditional spot. That's what I'm saying. I'm just, it, the evidence hasn't been pre- presented in a way where I'm convinced. What do you think, Rob? Are you convinced?
0: Well, you know, like I said, this is a, a, a new topic for me. But one of the things that, and so what, and this might be helpful for some listeners out there, what happens when you get to a situation where there's, where this, you know, some people seem really certain, and then there's some people that are saying, no, it's not clear. And if I have no prior training or, you know, you know, I don't have any research investment in this area. How do? What do I do? Well, one of the things that uh, I do really appreciate about uh, Rittmeier is the fact that he has spent years, you know, excavating, and he and um, there was a there was a scholar that Martin had claimed to study with, uh, Benjamin Mazar. Um, he, he claimed to work with him. Whereas Rittmeier was the architect of this dig, starting as way back as 1973, worked with Mazar for like 10 years plus, and never heard anything of, of Martin. In other words, a, a, and Rittmeier's one of his conclusions he says, look, the, Martin's claims have no, he says, quote, no credence whatsoever. They are not based on any archaeological evidence. And he he says his drawings cannot be called archaeological reconstruction, but rather they're a result of flawed interpretation of historical sources mixed with wishful thinking. I kind of paraphrase there a little bit. But this is what we see. We see people who have spent time Reading, whether it's in an archaeological situation or in texts, and then you have people who come along, kind of Johnny-come-latelys, who build up some fanciful claim that's not grounded in, you know, some of the fundamentals. And that is a flag. At the very least, it's a flag. And that's why we have, you know, some of our rules. We say, is this person trained in this? area, you know, uh, during our, one of the things I was doing while we were talking, I, was, I looked up, oh no, I, I shut the webpage, but it was the, it was the other guy, it started with a C, Cornuke, oh, he yeah. got his, he got his degree, PhD from Chuck Missler or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not a, it's not accredited uh, PhD system, uh, and it's not in archaeology, it's in uh, biblical theology, he's got a PhD from some point, uh, Chuck Missler institution.
2: We, we, and, we've had a lot of people, you know, there's been a lot of debate in our past shows about people who said, oh, you know, you're resting to, you rest on people who have letters after the names. We've talked a lot about that. I, and you know what? I, that's fine. If you want to say that, that a person doesn't have to have any training to be able to talk uh, intelligently, that, that's fine. I would agree that a person doesn't have to have any training then to talk hire
0: to. an untrained plumber to come fix your sink.
2: Yeah. But, but the point is, here's, here's the point. <laughs> if you Here, don't care. Here's the other point though, is that I, here's one of the things that, uh, you know, I would suggest to to people is if if somebody claims to have a uh, you know and I do this a lot I'll look up people's degrees if somebody claims to have a degree or do work uh in a specific field I'll look up their degree just to see where they got their training and who they studied under and those kind of things it kind of gives you a basis of okay this person's done this amount of work or yeah, they, we need to
0: orient ourselves it's it's just good it's yeah, a it, good it, study habit
2: it, it just it, it just allows you to see uh you know maybe where the person's coming from and Honestly, a lot of the times, what I'll find is that people within the Messianic movement and, and uh, people who are making fantastic claims, a lot of the time, their degree will will not be, a, I mean, I don't know how else to say this. I'm not trying to be mean, but it will not be a legitimate degree. In other words, they haven't actually gone to school to do the work. What they've done is they've signed up for a class that was, you know, a month or two long, and uh, they'll... they They kind of grade themselves essentially. And then at the end of it, whoever they've signed up with just, you know, for the extra $50 or whatnot, they give them this degree that says doctor on it or whatever it may be. And they're not necessarily legitimate. What that actually does show sometimes is that, uh, you know, and I'm sure there are good people who are really trying to get educated that that are going to some places like that and, you know, might not realize that there's better options. But a lot of the time, people are just trying to pay the money so that they have, you know, so that they can have a little bit more pull uh, among people. Not all the time, but uh, you know, so that's just something to look out for. It's just another one of those things. Basically, what I'm trying to get people to do is is have some of these things in their mind, so that when they are listening to somebody, you know, if you have three of these flags or four of these flags go off, then something might definitely be wrong you know if a person is is hitting on on for for the seven points that we're making here to look out for then what i hope happens is that you know if you at least agree with the with the seven laws that we've put out for things that we look for the you know maybe we should call them something else the seven flags <laughs> seven flags Instead of six flags, it's seven flags. Seven, se- seven flags to look for. That's what we should call it, the seven flags. So if you get if you get four out of the seven flags, then uh, you know something might definitely be wrong. Even if you disagree with us on maybe one or two of the flags, if there's you know if four of them are hit that you agree with, then maybe you know then something needs to be something's going on. Is basically all I'm saying. Um, and so I hope that we're uh, I hope. We're being clear on how we're trying to approach this now. Uh, You know, I want to give our listeners uh, good tools to be able to, you know, to be able to discern for themselves, you know? Uh, And a lot of that comes from just the idea that, you know, I don't want people to listen to me and people don't listen to me and say, oh, this guy's right. (laughs) I think more people disagree with me than actually agree with me. That's that's Okay. Uh, but what I, what I want to do is I want to be able to give people the tools to say, you know what, uh, I, I have the ability to say whether or not this is right or wrong. I hope that that's, you know, something that we're able to, if nothing else, something that we're able to, to help people with. All right. Well, uh, next week, we're going to try to go live. You can join us. We hope Lord willing, and we'll be praying about this. We hope you do too. I will be praying about whether or not we uh, are able to go live, whether the Lord will allow us to go live next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And that's 1 p.m. on the East Coast, Eastern Standard Time. And so you can join us. Hopefully by that point, watch our Facebook page, our F- uh, Facebook fan page, if, uh, if we are going to be going live, which we hope we will. And, uh, if we have a, uh, a chat room up, all of that information will be on our Facebook page. You'll be able to go there. You will be able to, uh, sign up for the chat room and uh, be able to chat with us live on the air and you'll be able to listen to us live as well. And I hope that it goes well. It'll be interesting let's to see how we we'll goes. Let's stoke this fire up. Yeah, let's stoke it up. Uh, and I hope that this show has been encouraging to you. I hope that we are going to be able to give you some tools to be able to discern within the body a good teaching and false teaching. And all of that is just so that we can glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.